Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Blumhouse TV's Gretchen Pale about the celebrated horror maker's move into natural history with Plimpsoul Productions. Waterbear Network's Poppy Mason Watts on the challenges facing environmental-themed programming and Humblebee Films' Stephen Dunleavy on new series Secret World of Sound with David Attenborough. US-based horror specialist Blumhouse this summer partnered with UK-based ITV Studios' own natural history studio Plimsoll Productions to develop Nightmares of Nature, a factual series that aims to spotlight the true-life horrors found in the natural world. Blumhouse founder Jason Blum, the company's president of TV Chris McCumber and head of alternative Gretchen Palak are executive producing the show alongside Plimsoll's Grant Mansfield, Alan Ayres, Tom Hugh-Jones and Martha Holmes. Palek, the former co-president of ITV Studios' Left Field Pictures, spoke to Neil Beatty about the project, which is currently being pitched to buyers, and what else she's looking to develop as Blumhouse builds out its unscripted slate. I've been reading a lot about Nightmares of Nature, and it sounds like it's got the potential to be one of the most original natural history series in a long time. How on earth did one of the world's leading horror production companies come to collaborate with a blue-chip wildlife production company? Well, I will say thank you for the compliment, and please <laughs> let the folks at Plimsoll know. Um, it's it's interesting. So I a little bit about my background. I, you know, I came from Discovery Channel and have always been a huge fan of natural history and wildlife programs. Um, And at Blumhouse, when I started, which was probably about a year and a half ago, uh, we were really focused on sort of opening up our aperture and broadening the scope of the types of unscripted programs we were doing. You're probably familiar with some of the things um, that we've done in the past, the Jinx, um, maybe Worst Roommate Ever, Wilderness of Air. We've done a lot of true crime, but we really wanted to start playing in other genres. And so when Jason asked me, well, what other genres would you think could make sense for Blumhouse and you'd want to do? One of the first things I said was natural history. Um, I feel as though the two disciplines could braid together quite well. I think um, when I was introduced to Grant uh, Mansfield at Plimsoll and we started discussing the potential collaboration, then Alan Ayers came on board, who I worked at Discovery with. Um, It's sort of how we came up with Nightmares of Nature. I think that um, both genres are known for immersive storytelling, right? And the ability to transport a a viewer to a world they're not familiar with. There's antagonists, there's protagonists, there's predators, there's prey. And I feel like in horror movies, we know all about that all too well. Um, Point being, I think the two worlds are actually far more complementary than most people would think. In, In what ways? I think with the immersive storytelling and being able to transport an audience to a world they're not necessarily familiar with, creating moments of of suspense, um, I think in both disciplines, um, I think natural history, especially the folks at Plimsoll, accomplish that and they're best in class. And I feel like with Blumhouse and horror producers, the same same with us. Okay. I've not been able to see any kind of um, sizzles for the show or anything like that, but mm-hmm. I've read on the press release, I've read about bleeding trees, zombie squirrels, <laughs> and vampire fish. Can you, can you just basically tell me all about the series? What are we going to see in it? Well, it's a serialized wildlife series that in theory reveals the true terrors of the natural world. World, right. So across the series, um, we'll follow a lead animal character, our protagonist, and hopefully our and quote unquote final girl. <laughs> They'll take us through their world where everything is dangerous or unusual and possibly deadly. Right. So I think depending on the creature, I mean, I think you're talking about the lamprey 
um, the the trees that bring sort of those, it's a canker sort of fungus, sexton beetles, um, various birds of prey. Um, I think our protagonist creature will come across these deadly sort of predators and um, we'll be rooting for our protagonist, but that's really what we're doing. So are there actually kind of almost characters that we follow throughout the series or is each episode standalone? We're actually talking to potential buyers about two different versions. There is one um, version that it would be one animal protagonist throughout the series. And then we are talking to other potential buyers about a different creature each episode. Okay. And what what kinds of new elements do you think um, Blumhouse can bring to the genre of, of natural history? Well, hopefully with all of our horror experts, cinematographers, music score composition, post-production and editors, I think those are the experts that we're going to be bringing to the table. We've had such great conversations with Flimsaw in terms of um, their directors and their producers, but combining and sort of braiding the two together, I think we're each going to learn from each other. I think in a lot of um, our horror movies and even our unscripted true crime, you know, music composition and editing is just so important to really get that lean in thrilling moment. So I think when we've talked to the folks at Plimsaw and Tom Hugh Jones has been one of the other producers at Plimsaw, we've um, had a lot of discussions with the idea of working with our heads of post-production to ensure that we really can maximize those moments and also score um, for that maximum, whether or not we get a jump scare or not, but at least that anticipation, right, that what is coming around the corner for our protagonist creature, being able to really squeeze those moments and our craftspeople will be able to do that. So uh, would I be right in saying that Plimsoll have already harvested the kind of filmed content of the animals in their habitats? And it's Blumhouse's remit to kind of, in, in post-production, make it as scary and as visceral as possible. I think that's the hope. We obviously have not shot anything. We are actually still pitching this, this project. So we're still at market. Um, but I think that is the idea. And I think with a lot of, of our moments, that is, you know, they're going to be in the field. They're the wildlife hit natural history experts. And I think we are the horror experts. And a lot of those moments come through in post-production. That being said, we have a lot of conversations on the front end. So they do capture the right angles. They are able to capture those moments so that we have as much as possible to work with in the post. And, you know, I mean, obviously the animal kingdom is, is a place of horror. I mean, people think of animals as being cute or they think of the predators but just in everyday life for animals there's all kinds of gory and quite horrific things that happen isn't there you know spiders being et by their own own offspring and things like that did you have any kinds of like conversations i mean because obviously wildlife is co-viewing it's family viewing did you have any kind of conversations on just how far you could push the kind of the scares and the fright factor i think you i mean you said it, i mean the natural world is as creepy freaky and strange as anything the best minds in horror can actually imagine i mean that is the truth um, and I think when we've talked about this, I, I think we've used the word like a dark fairy tale. I don't think this is carnage. I don't think this show should be something that families can't watch together. But I grew up with fairy tales and fables, and they were a little dark and spooky and weird and unusual. But it didn't cross that line. And so I think we've talked about PG, PG-13. It's still Blumhouse. So we want to make sure that we're representing our brand appropriately. But I think dark fairy tale is more where we're headed toward than watching an orca rip apart a seal. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it would be fair to say that it's not directly aimed at kind of preschoolers. It's, it's a slightly older demographic, perhaps high school teens into adults. 
Correct. And, and you mentioned before jump scares, which is, is quite interesting because when people think of all the kind of classic horror tropes, jump scares, people in hockey masks and chainsaws, <laughs> what, I mean, how, how are you going to bring that kind of horror element to the screen? What kind of techniques does Blumhouse have in its wheelhouse to kind of to kind of bring bring those that kind of fright factor to the screen? To be able to do a proper jump scare, I mean, that is ambitious. I would love it if if we can, but it, it's it's not easy. I think it's the anticipation. It's the thrill. It's the moment of our creature protagonist who is in a in the woodlands and does not know that they're about to come across something over and across a mossy log. It's just building those moments of anticipation. Um, I think that will we get a jump scare? I, I don't yet know, but I think it's the mystery of their journey and or their quest is what we're hoping to apply to it um, as best we can. And a lot of those, you know, the tricks of the trade, my goodness, there's so many experts that would kill me. But I do think it is going back to the scoring and, and the editing and working with the filmmakers at Plimsoll to ensure that everything we're getting in the field will be able to utilize in the Bay and in post to maximize those moments. Sure. Do you have anyone attached as a as a narrator or a presenter at this stage? Not yet, but we have had so many fun conversations about it. I think once we lock in on a buyer, we'll work with them to decide who's best. But it's been so fun being able to talk about the right vo- voice for something like this, um, how creepy you could go. And I definitely have some people that I would love, um, but we shall see. Um, you talked about pitching. Um, what kind of um, broadcasters or platforms are you hoping might be clients for this for this series? And how are you going about pitching it? What what is your pitching process? Do you have any any special um, special things that line up your sleeves? Well, it is a true collaboration, and so on the pitches thus far, and we are not done yet. You know, Jason and Grant Mansfield have both been in the pitches. It is a proper collaboration. And so we are bringing the horror expertise and they are bringing the natural history, wildlife expertise. And so in our conversations with streamers or even um, traditional broadcast buyers, it really is an emphasis of what we each bring to the table um, and explaining um, how we arrived to where we are. The conversations have been great, I think, to your very kind compliment at the beginning, um, it, a lot of people in the space feel like it's really fresh and something they had not necessarily contemplated or seen before. I think because we are so invested in this show, it's certainly one of our favorites on all of our slates. Um, I think people feel that passion and enthusiasm. And Jason does not show up for every single pitch. He doesn't have enough time, but he is in this one and he he loves it. So I feel as though our conversations have been really, really productive. And it's been fun. Again, it's one of our favorites on all of our slates. Okay. Any idea how many how many episodes and what kinds of um, runtime they're going to be? It's a very good question. Between six and 10 is where we're at. Runtime TBD. Um, I think they feel more like 30s, but that's just where we're at right now. But yeah, I don't think this is something that is more than than 10 episodes. And we are hoping that it's serialized. So whether it's something where it's a creature per episode or a creature per season, we are hopeful that this is something that could come back. Season yeah, I mean, it does strike me as a, as a potentially returnable series because there are just so many animals that you could could profile in this kind of setup, isn't there? Yeah, so many environments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Um, is this likely to be a one-off side hustle into the world of natural history or, or do, you, do you plan to produce more projects in this space? I would love to produce more in the space. And I've gotten some interesting calls after the announcement. Again, it's something that I truly do feel like is very, very complimentary. And I would love to do more. I think it just has to be the right fit. Um, if um, in some of the conversations that we're having and some of the people that have reached out, why Blumhouse? We just have to be able to answer that. And we want to make sure that what we bring to the table is is as equal as what any other natural history company would be bringing. So for me, I would love to do more in this space. And um, let's just broaden out our conversation in terms of yeah. your, your role as head of alternative. You, you know, you're heading up a team that's developing a slate of projects um, across nonfiction genres and for formats. I mean, Nightmares of Nature is a great example of this. Um, can you tell me a little bit about future plans to blur the boundaries a bit more between genres? And can you can you talk about any projects you've got coming down the pipe? Yes. So I would say in terms of sort of broadening what we've done before, we obviously have other true crime. Um, we do have a project for a large streamer that is in the competition space that is pretty unexpected. Unfortunately, has not been announced yet. So I can't get into it. But I do think that when people hear about it, they will be surprised. But at the same time, it will make a lot of sense. Um, I think we're working on um, one or two social experiments, which I don't think is a huge stretch for Blumhouse, but it is not something that we have necessarily done before. Um, we're working in um, a project in the paranormal space, which again, isn't that big of a stretch. And then something in the dark history space. Okay. The competition and social experiment spaces are quite quite interesting, aren't they? Because, again, that's come quite different from horror, to say the least. But they're, they're very kind of on trend at the moment, aren't they? Is the competition one, is it like an adventure show? Is it is it that kind of uh, genre? Adventure and extraction. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new one. You might have yes. actually invented a new job. It end with a little sprinkle of fear. So listen, I come from the discovery world where I worked on all the survival programs I developed alone when I was at ITV. So it is in my wheelhouse in the same way I feel strongly about natural history. I love survival. I think I look at alone and that could have potentially been a Blumhouse show. I look at something like Life Below Zero and that could have been a Blumhouse show. So we are certainly developing in the survival adventure space. It's just something that I am really passionate about, but nothing that I can talk about quite yet. And as head of alternative, I mean, how would you describe that role? Is it Are you basically everything that's non-horror at Blumhouse? You're just trying to widen out the scope of that remit? Um, unscripted. So we obviously have, um, BHTV has scripted television, we have film, anything unscripted documentary falls under me. And so um, I think I have the best job in the world. I get to ideate for a living. <laughs> and so um, we develop, I have a team. We also take external pitches. We do a lot of collaborations. And, you know, for us, it's just making sure that everything fits the Blumhouse filter. Um, as much as I would love to do a housewife show, it doesn't make sense for us. But I'm lucky enough that there's enough genres out there that I think put through our lens makes sense. And you mentioned like feedback about the show Nightmares of Nature. I mean, what you must have got some quite humorous responses that, you know, a horror production company were, were going into nature. I mean, what, what kind of things have people been saying? Actually, very kind. I think fans in the heart community made has have made the connection that the natural world is mysterious it is unknown it is horrifying at times and it is wonderful at times so i think one of um one of the greatest compliments is fangoria magazine 
um, which is a horror periodical that has a big online presence, picked it up and did an article that they couldn't wait to see what Blumhouse does with the wildlife programming. And for me, because they're such a key indicator of our world and our audience, I was excited that if they were excited to see it, that I know our fans will be too. So we've had a lot of great compliments. I was I was very pleasantly surprised. Sure. And do you, do you think some of the kind of um, clients of yours that normally take your horror content, do you think they'd be interested in, in um, commissioning something from the natural history space that has a horror element like this? I think so. I mean, again, because we're still pitching, um, I feel like we've gotten a lot of compliments from buyers that they feel like it's very fresh and innovative. And I think with natural history, everyone wants to evolve like the tried and true genres. And so I think even though people may not have thought that a collaboration like this would happen, once they see it, they hear the title and understand the logline, it makes such great sense. And then I think it's a matter of, well, how, how far do we want to go with the heart? And for us, we had those conversations early on. That we know there's a built-in natural history audience. We know that that is often families. We don't want to alienate them. So we want to keep it within a certain realm, but we also want to bring in our fans that we think will also really love this type of programming. Well, Gretchen, I can't wait to see the show. Really, oh. it seems extremely intriguing. <laughs> it sounds a bit mad, but I can't I can't wait for it. So, um, Neil, thank again. you so much. I know that you cover this space frequently. So for you to say <laughs> that, I mean, that just is really, really exciting. So thank you very much. Water Bear Network was set up four years ago by Off The Fence founder Ellen Windermuth, an environmentally themed streamer offering a range of documentaries promoting positive human action. The platform offers a mix of feature-length and short-form content for free and has the support of a wide range of non-governmental organisations and philanthropists, all concerned about climate change and how to tackle it. Water Bear Chief Growth and Impact Officer Poppy Mason Watts spoke to Neil Beatty about the company's involvement in natural history, how the genre is coming under growing financial pressure, with brands increasingly picking up the slack, and how short form snackable content is also coming to the fore. Obviously, the natural history space is one that's evolved rapidly in the last few years. What trends have you observed recently? Um, how is the, the, the space being taken forward and progressed? Yeah, so I think what we are seeing is financing challenges. Um, so the natural history space is obviously, it's an underfinanced space. Um, and we're seeing more and more, it's become more and more competitive, less and less money flying around to finance documentary kind of films. Um, and it's proving, it's making people have to be, they're, they're having to play with their formats, they're having to play with their lengths, they're having to be a little bit more um, inventive in terms of using archive footage, not sending people out and flying people out to spend the cash there. They're having to think about what the audience wants now as well, because more and more you've got this next generation of, of I guess, consumers looking for slightly different content, consuming content on mobiles, consuming content on social. So they're having to really think about how to get things financed a little bit differently and how they're creating, what kind of formats they're creating to, to kind of reach this new audience, I guess. Why is the finance so difficult? Because, it, I mean, it would appear, I mean, obviously I know that there's economic pressures across the industry but I mean, yep. the, the, the the natural history and wildlife space has exploded in recent years due to the streamers. I mean, this kind of content is very much in demand. Why don't people want to want to stump up some money for it? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because you've got the streamers. So this space has obviously exploded, but you've got Netflix or Disney or Amazon. They've only got a small.
small slither of space for documentary content, right? So everyone is vying for that space. Everyone is going after the same funders. Everyone is looking for the same cash to make their films so that they can hit those big streamers. And it's it's, it's making it really competitive. Um, that's definitely what we're seeing. And at Water Bear, we're actually, you know, we, we have a different model. Um, we don't just focus on the mega films. We're also looking at short form and the next gen of filmmakers who, who can't kind of, or don't necessarily get their films taken up by these big streamers. Um, but I think it's because everyone's vying for that that small spot that that Netflix has. You look at My Octopus Teacher, which was one of the biggest films the COVID year, whenever it was, 2019, 2020, but that was the only big mega wildlife doc that came out on Netflix for a really long time um, because they don't, that's that's not their bread and butter. So if you've got a huge community of, of filmmakers vying for that space, also vying for the funding to make sure that they can make something big enough to explode so that a Netflix is going to pick it up, it's a very difficult industry. Yeah, you need to tame some kind of true crime element. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got a murder mystery, you're absolutely fine. Yeah, then they'd be giving you a blank check. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you mentioned yourself there, the next generation of filmmakers. Who are they and what kinds of content are they are they making? I mean, there's two, it's twofold for us. It's looking at next gen of filmmakers from the global south. So making sure that we've got a huge representation, shared representation of voices, and it's not just the filmmakers um coming out from the more traditional um, I guess, spaces of natural, natural history filmmaking, which traditionally in the UK has been Bristol or London. Um so it's it's that it's making sure there's fair representation there, but it's also the next gen of you know the youth filmmakers whose films might not necessarily be picked up by the major streamers, um, but are still looking for their voices to be heard, for their films to be shared, so that they can get that experience. And I think with with Water Bear, we're really championing that space. You know, we don't have the major budgets that Netflix does, who can pay for a, a kind of an hour and a half feature doc. But if you've got a short film on conservation or a short film on biodiversity loss, let's see if we can get it on. Water bear so that you're, you've got a platform that's showcasing your work. Okay. And are those the kind of major themes that you're looking for? Because I was, one of my questions was was going to be, you know, do you think viewers demand more than just a documentary about animals now? Does there need to be some kind of theme or something more original or fresh to kind of keep people interested? Yeah. I mean, I think there's still a space for, as you say, a documentary just about an animal. Um, but I think what we're finding is consumer demand and appetite is so vast. Um, and that is because we're in an attention economy, right? You've got TikTok, 10 seconds videos that you're just scrolling through you've got the streamers you've got youtube you've got every single social channel and the appetite certainly from waterbear's perspective you know we launched a lot of us came from the natural history space and we launched very much with kind of climate focused content conservation-led content biodiversity focused content but the appetite from consumers has been we want to see films with people in it we want to see faces we want to hear social justice stories we want to see how these worlds collide um and to that end we we moved away from pigeonholing is the wrong word but we moved away from that space and we, we kind of broadened our remit so that we're covering because it's 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 also intersectional. You know, a, a refugee story tends to be a climate story, a, a kind of biodiversity loss story tends to be a climate story. It, it's it's all so linked. Um, but I think in today's world, while there is, is still space for the kind of conservation led content, people are demanding and, and, and want much more. Okay. And when it comes to the conservation and environmental content, is it difficult to kind of to make it without kind of coming across as like lecturing the viewer or being all kind of doom and gloom? Do you, is there ways of putting it across more positively and engaging people better? Yeah. There's um that stat that the word numb is in numbers. We you've got to move away from that, I think. Uh, we've got a huge audience 
most consumers who are fighting against apathy um, because, you know, there's this huge pressure on overwhelm. It's how do I as an individual do something if I'm watching these doom and gloom films, stats, facts thrown at me, the world is ending. I don't think that's the right way of communicating. Um, we've just done a major consumer survey with our whole audience base. And the overwhelming response was we want hopeful, positive content that inspires us and gets us to do something. So to that end, I think people have got to start thinking about what is going to resonate with your audience. If you start with that audience group, you're going to start making content that they need, that they want, that they demand. Whereas if you're just churning out wildlife or natural history films without any consideration for what the audience actually wants to see, um, it makes it it makes it very inaccessible. It's really interesting that you mentioned before that, you, that, that viewers are wanting to see people in these documentaries yeah. and films rather than just animals. Can you be a little bit more specific or give examples of what kind of people they want to see? Or can you think of um, you know recent shows that have featured this kind of thing? Yeah, of course. My octopus teacher, great example. That was a tiny, tiny story about one man and his relationship to an octopus and, and his kind of getting outdoors and, and his reconnection to nature. Um, with everything we do, we try to make sure the stories are people-led, um, human-focused, because people can relate more to that kind of content, that kind of story. Um, and if you can see a human doing something amazing or a human in a local community doing something great at a local level, it, it becomes far more relatable and seems to resonate with, with audiences better. Some great examples on Water Bear, we've, we've just made a film, uh, or actually it was a few months ago now, a film called The Black Mermaid, um, which is about an amazing female black diver who is an open water free diver. Uh, she's phenomenal, but it's a beautiful nine minute short about kind of ocean conservation and why the ocean is so amazing and why people need to get back to nature and, and be in the ocean. But it's told through her eyes um, as this amazing South African free diver. So yeah, it, it, it just, it resonates better with people. And um, you also mentioned shorts. I mean, is, is that because the world's getting slightly less of a, a concentration span? Are you kind oh. of focusing on that kind of demographic? Let's not be insulting that, uh, you know, <laughs> have a lot of other things going on in their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's, oh God, I think there's space for everything. I think, you know, I'm water bear, we've got feature docs, but we've also got micro shorts, which are two to three minutes long, which is bonkers. It's a, it's a social media kind of film length. Um, sweet spot for us with our audience tends to be five to 10 minutes or 15 to 20 and I think it's because it's a time crunch issue. And also when you're dealing with topics that are quite hard to deal with, I guess, and if you think about climate change, a 20 minute bout of positivity around climate is much easier than an hour and a half, I guess, deluge on, on climate. It's interesting though, because, you know, the short world is, super, is, is fascinating. You've got amazing shorts that get created and, and don't tend to go anywhere afterwards. You know, they can be entered for shorts awards, um, but then they tend to go to YouTube to die. Uh, there's no other platform. There's, there's a kind of a handful of platforms that take on on shorts but they're very specific in the art house space or whatever that might be and, and water bear is trying to be this home for all kinds of documentary films playing in that intersection of entertainment and documentary storytelling to make sure that we're thinking about what different audiences need but we've got the short form the kind of mid mid form and then the longer form feature docs and and the short form does resonate really well okay so that's getting a lot of streams from your your subscribers yeah absolutely um and obviously we're trying to water bear trying to put action at the heart of everything so it's less about how many views something is getting and more about how many people are doing something after watching so if you're going into the platform to watch a five minute film on climate and then donating at the end that's kind of your good action done quite quickly over you don't have to sit through an hour and a half film and then think about oh god what do i need to go and do um it's far more kind of i guess it, it fits into this social media attention economy yeah. are you able to even track that yeah how, how on earth do you manage to do that because we're an impact platform um so we don't call ourselves a streamer we actually call ourselves um an impact platform kind of driven driven by content and we track everything so the idea is that 
we want to help people on their learning journey, their impact journey. So if I'm talking to a football community, as an example, about climate change, they're my audience. I'm not going to make a film like The Inconvenient Truth for them. I'm going to make something that resonates about football pitches flooding because of climate. I'm using a real example. Um, We can then see where they've come in from. We can then see how much of the film they watched, whether they dropped off at a certain point. We can kind of evaluate why they might have dropped off. We can then see what actions they take at the end, whether it's find out more about an NGO, whether it's download an info pack, whether it's donate to said climate NGO. And we can then think about that's that's their kind of thing that they've done this week. Do we want them to be doing more in this space so we can start serving them content? And that's it's not done based on algorithm. It's done by humans, um, the team here. But it's how can we get people to start thinking about embedding impact in their day-to-day life? They understand content. We know that content inspires and engages. Let's connect that inspiration to doing there and then. And that's what the platform is all about. It's interesting. Can you can you think of any recent shows that you've acquired that have impressed you with their kind of originality and innovation? Yeah, we've got some really cool kind of different formats. And we're also working with some partners who are coming to us with, with some great ideas. So a selection of shorts we showcased recently was a series called Every Living Thing, which was about animals that are on the verge of going extinct. So it looks at wolves, um, bees, and it's it's almost in a mockumentary style kind of it's it's very different it's sassy it's very kind of it's funny right um and i think it's quite unusual to to laugh when watching a traditional doc um we also worked with a team recently on an animated film super cool so they came to us they had this idea around deep sea mining and and you know this 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 noise at the moment around the moratorium around deep sea mining we really wanted to engage a younger audience on deep sea mining again i can put my hands up and say that i i know about deep sea mining because of my job but it's it's a very inaccessible topic and we thought about how could we how could we best touch a younger audience with it so we made an animated film that looks a bit like um, Rick and Morty or Family Guy that you might have seen really resonated with an audience of 30 to 45 year old men unsurprisingly because they recognize the style of animation very funny most people watched it to the end and everyone that watched it or most people the percentage of people that watched it that then signed the petition at the end to end deep sea mining was phenomenal that conversion rate wow so do you think that there could be a future for um animation in you know natural history space would you be inspired to kind of commission more kind of things like yeah, that absolutely yeah yeah because it, it it speaks to a certain audience and you know we're playing with docufiction we are playing with animation reality formats it's it's all about it starts with that audience so while we can talk about the natural history space conservation space who are we trying to talk to with the content that we're making in that space and then think about what they need to see that's that's how we're approaching it which i guess might be slightly different to others and um, what content have you got coming down the pipeline is there any upcoming projects that you particularly eager to plug yeah we've got some really cool brand funded content um which most people shiver when they hear of brand funded is obviously is, is a large part of our model i don't know how much you know about that but we we're not championing branded entertainment in any shape or form we are trying to encourage brands to commission documentaries so we're financing documentaries in different ways and a really great example is a film on the platform called the serengeti of america which is about rewilding the serengeti plains in america beautiful natural history focus but it's, it's stunning um jack wolfskin funded that they made it possible and the reason is they really deeply care about the outdoors um, and they want to um, encourage efforts to rewild amazing spaces and that's a really good example so we've got some epic films we've got one about the flower cutting industry coming out we've got um one about 
disruptive tech and humane technology. We've got kind of four or five big ones. And um, how did Waterbear get involved with actually commissioning and financing projects themselves? Um, so we work with content in a few different ways. We have a slate, an ever-evolving slate. It's phenomenal. I wish we could make everything on it. And we kind of go out to filmmakers all around the world again with that focus on the global south to make sure we're getting a fair representation of voices. We evolve that slate every few months. It's got 60 or 70 ideas on it. We take those films to philanthropists, investors, brands, NGOs, and they can commission direct from the slate and Waterbear is that production partner and, and makes these possible. So that's one route. So we're always looking for epic slate ideas um, across the broad spectrum of natural history, biodiversity and conservation, all the way to social justice, humanitarian crises. We then co-create films. Um, so we have some ideas of our own. We co-create with brands, NGOs. We're working with Oxfam at the moment to make a film for COP, for example. We're co-creating films with Vivo, Barefoot, with Jack Wolfskin, um, with some major, major players. Um, so that's another, another route. Then we also have a little bit of a budget for our own originals. But actually, in the last six months, the originals have come off our slate because we love them so much. And we, we don't produce in-house. We work with those production partners to make them. And last question now, looking ahead for the next two, two or three years, um, what are the opportunities and um, challenges that are presented towards the natural history space as we as we move forward? I think the main challenge is budget. Um, I think we're really, really going to struggle to find budgets for um, natural history content. And we're going to have to be really savvy about where budget comes from. And that's everyone I speak to in the industry is having the same issue at the moment in getting content financed and getting content commissioned. Um, I think the more we play in the intersection of entertainment and docs, the more it leans into something that people recognise more easily. Um, so it doesn't just sit in that traditional doc space. I think there's more chances of it being commissioned. Yeah, because it's like that entertainment reality kind of genre. That's coming to uh, natural history a little bit as well, hasn't it? Yeah. Recent, recent yeah. And I think you'll find... You know, I think of the Zac Efron show on Netflix, Down to Earth, right? Mm -hmm. And you think of the huge audience that had um, because it sat in that entertainment space with a celebrity leading it, far more accessible. Um, but I think it's going to be very hard to play in that space for smaller independent filmmakers because they require massive budgets. Yeah. And it's access-led, isn't it? So it's not going to be so 100%. easy for everyone to get a Zac Efron, is it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we could never get a Zac Efron. Like, it's 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 so difficult. But I think that's the only way you're going to be able to cut through with the major streamers. And, and maybe that's, that's a challenge we need to be thinking of. And people should come to Waterbear instead. Stephen Dunleavy is Chief Executive and Exec Producer of Humblebee Films, a Bristol-based UK indie focused on premium factual and natural history documentaries whose credits include Life in Colour with David Attenborough for the BBC and Netflix. Now the company has got together with the fated presenter once again on a new series for Sky and Netflix called Secret World of Sound, co-produced together with Canada's Infield Fly Productions, with CBC also on board in that territory, and Abacus Media Rights Distributing. The three times one hour programme is due for release in the spring of next year and Dunleavy spoke with Neil Beatty about the innovations at the heart of the show that help offer a fresh approach to their subject matter and the challenges natural history is having to deal with as streamers that once piled into the genre are now taking a more cautious approach. 
why don't you start off by telling me all about this this project then? Because it certainly sounds like it's going to be um, something different for this space. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we did Life in Colour with with David Attenborough. And afterwards, we were thinking, you know, obviously, what, what could we follow up with in a, an idea? And we weren't necessarily thinking directly with him in mind, because when we actually pitched this, um, you know, we had regular conversations with him about ideas. But we were talking to BBC, Sky, various people, Netflix, and the sound. So we think, think about the senses that you can use and sounds is is one which we thought wow actually no one's really done and also the, the thing about sound is that it's often in natural history an afterthought really and so we, we kind of dug into that and then started pitching it around and it became a, a, a netflix sky both brought into it and cbc came on board as a co-producer who were working with a company called infill fly who we worked with before in a co-production for one of our projects with david before um i think we, i think it caught sky's attention quite quickly i think poppy was quite new in the in her position as commissioning editor or head of factual or commissioning for sky nature and she said it was a real standout the idea of using sound um her husband's a composer so i think she's always thinking about how these things sound so i right from the beginning sky were really on board with it which was fantastic and so we were then just talking to potential partners to to go produce and netflix i think on the back of life and color said yeah let's go for it um and we did an extra bit of money and CPC came on board uh, for Canada. As I say, we hadn't, when we started going into production with it, we did start talking to David about, about it. I mean, he, we, we have regular chats with him and he he said, uh, you know, what are you guys doing? And we mentioned this. He said, oh, well, you know, let, let me know how it goes. I think, you know, he's of a certain age. He, he likes to see how a project pans out. And if, you know, if he can help towards the end, he, he will. And so uh, he came on board once we started talking to an earnest with him earlier this year. And we, we started then, I mean, the announcement has been made recently, but we actually had been filming with him in May because we had to film during the best time in the UK. Um, so we, we knew he'd be doing it, but then Sky made the formal announcement at Edinburgh. So that was a great, great that he's he's on board with it. I mean, obviously, TV is a visual medium. How do you make sound interesting for the viewers? Presumably, there's a great deal you can do with sound now that maybe 15, 20, 20 years ago, you, you couldn't even consider because of the technology. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of hidden sounds that we don't necessarily hear. I mean, you know, we use a mix of conventional microphones, but we also have some specialist ones and things like a laser vibrometer, which is is a laser microphone effectively. And that's come from more the kind of uh, industry side of uh, people using things to check in for faults in, in airplanes and things, but it's been adapted to use for natural history. And that can pick up vibrations and we're using that. So sound ultimately is vibration. And so we're using that in some of the sequences that we do, particularly one which I've just been watching with this tree hopper that vibrates its body on onto a stem of a plant and they all have different the different species have different sounds they're very funny some sound like quacks some sound like sort of foghorns um it interprets it obviously for our ears we can't hear it so it has to translate it but those vibrations are traveling along plant stems to to females from the males and the females responding and then the males going okay where is she so it becomes like a sat nav for the male to find a female so that's kind of a new new bit of kit that we're using we also use this thing called an acoustic camera which has been around for a while but i don't think people have used it for the screen scientists have used it and it actually 
actually just picks out, they visually translate onto the image where the sound is coming from and the kind of frequencies that are occurring. So we use that on our, our, our B sequence for, for one thing, and we use it on an owl hunting sequence. So when an owl is hunting, it's trying to assess where the sound is underneath the snow of a vole, but the the, um, the snow it diffracts the sound. So with our acoustic camera, you can see it shows where the sound is apparently coming from, and then you can actually show where it really is coming from. And the, the owl has to use its sensory system to, to basically get enough height to look straight down to take into account this diffraction that's going on. So that's another new bit of kit that we're using as well. So it's, it's kind of using techniques like that. But then we, 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 we have conventional microphones, but they're put into, they're actually put out into the field, you know, often in natural history. People don't go out with sound recording kit. They, they go out, they film, they put the sound on afterwards. 90% of what we've been filming for this series or more has been actually recorded in the field. Um, so we, we've gone out and gathered the sound with, with, with the cameraman. The sound of the camera operators aren't necessarily seeing side by side. The sound person might be going out, placing um, sound kit around the place. But it means you've got the genuine sounds from those events happening, really, which is which is quite nice. And obviously, you know, the sound sound element is, is what makes this show unique. I mean, how important is it now to have like a specific theme or kind of concept to do with a nature show rather than just the traditional kind of uh, wildlife show of having animals and showing animals' behaviour? Does it have to be more than that now? I think anything that makes it stand out. I mean, you know, I think we've been in a bubble for a while. So the traditional habitat-based series, because there have been so many different buyers, has worked. Uh, and, you know, habitat-based films can work really well. There are a lot of people do them really well. The BBC do them really well. Um, but I think a lot of people get tired of just habitat-based films. So what we, we have always tried to create an, um, a niche for ourselves, which is more, I suppose, driven by themes, you know, colour being one of those. And when we first pitched it, people were going, oh, it's a bit thematic. And but when you realise it's actually a very visual thing, <laughs> it's an easy concept. Um, but I do think you have to sort of find a way of presenting the natural world differently for people. Because if you say, oh, we're going to go to Africa, we're going to do, um, you know, deserts or, or you know, we, we've done all that before, really. So I do think there has to be a different hook to make things stand out. And I think people are constantly looking at that. And, you know, the, the market is changing dramatically now. And so I think you, you just going in with a, a, a habitat-based idea isn't strong enough. You have to have something that gives you a different feel for it. But that's where we have always, I think, we've always done that. You know, we've never re we've never really pitched habitat-based series. Okay. There's always a, a theme to it, you know. Yeah. So that helps. Can you think of any, can you think of any others either um, in the recent past or in your future pipeline that also have this, you know, have different themes that aren't the traditional format? Because you've, you've mentioned, uh, you mentioned colour, you mentioned sounds. Are, are there any more? Have you got, is there any, any more up your sleeve that you're working on at the moment? Oh, yeah. There's a, <laughs> we've always got several up our sleeve. Of course, we can't tell you what they are. Uh, yeah, of course. But um, we are, and they are, you know, they, 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 some of them could be a precinct base. So sometimes you, you might not be, it might not be a habitat as such, but it could be a precinct yields a certain situation or, you know, or even the wild babies that we did, you know, people have done baby uh, natural history series before. But I think what we liked about that was that we had a kind of a, what we tried to do with that is actually have the drama cross episodes as well. So you have viewers come back and I think it, it, coming back to see what happens in the next episode is quite crucial as well. A lot of natural history films are, are closed. You know, if there's going to have a 
habitat is closed, you move on to the next habitat. If you can actually have your characters reappear sometimes uh, in a way that's a bit of a hook, I think that can be a strength as well. I mean, you know, there's been uh, Chimp Empire, I think, for Netflix as well recently, been done by Keo. That kind of concept of can you make viewers watch the next episode or binge watch is, is a challenge for natural history because I think a lot of streamers probably went into buying natural history thinking they'll binge watch natural history like they do dramas. But it's a very different idea, really. I think a lot of people, natural history is like a treat. I think often people might watch one and then they'll be delighted to watch one next week or the one the week after. But the idea of necessarily watching 10 episodes in one go, I don't think it really happens because it's not the same as drama. But you do still have to think, what would what would encourage them to, to maybe watch two or three episodes or or come back at least to watch yeah. this episode? And It's <laughs> almost like introducing a kind of drama narrative, isn't it, yeah. to, to, to a natural history show? Absolutely. And that, yeah. that's one, one way people are thinking about how, how do we do it differently. Um, so not necessarily having closed episodes. So there's lots of different, you know, areas that have been explored. I mean, you know, it's constantly trying to find new ways of telling these stories. But also you can look at the past and think, actually, this story was told 20, 30 years ago. The technology has moved on and we can tell it again, but with new tech, which allows us to go deeper into this in a different way. So so I think it, it, it's always trying to find those new angles on things, you know, quite, you know, which is a challenge for, for us. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just going back to World of Sound a second, you, you mentioned that, um, that there's some new scientific discoveries in this show. Are you at liberty to, to give us a couple, just, just to reveal a couple? I think there's a, one, one of our... Uh, B sequences, we, we found that the um, some of the sounds were being made that the B scientists said they, they didn't know what they were and they were going to be investigating them and doing a paper on them. So it's always quite nice when you do something where the scientists are looking at what you're filming and recording and saying, oh, this is new, we need to investigate this. So, so there's a little bit of that going on within there about what these sounds mean that we're still trying to interpret. So it's throwing up kind of, kind of interesting areas for science to, to, to interpret and there's some things which are still unknown or still being kind of worked out in there really so we um we've got this thing called the midshipman fish which is does this amazing dronal uh, noise and they it's taken a i mean it's been known about for the last few years but they, it took a while for people to understand the full story with how they make their calls and what it's for it was this eerie sound that used to kind of come above the water in the pacific northwest and for for years people didn't know what it what it was causing and they realized it was fish but they weren't quite sure why and now we've got a full story of what's happening with that which is quite nice so there's some really great stories in there which i think people will be surprised about and and, and will feel fresh Let's talk a little bit about your relationship with Sir David Attenborough. I mean, obviously, in this genre, he's a colossus. I mean, if you mention the words, the words natural history, that's what everyone thinks of. What does having his name attached to a project mean? Does it does it kind of mean it's more or less an automatic commission, such as such as the kind of respect that he yields? Uh, no, in the simple answer, not automatic. I mean, um, I think, but I think having his name attached does actually elevate it, obviously. Um, I think, you know, when you work with someone like, like David, you, you feel that you're kind of you're on your best you know you're trying to perform your best because he he you want to deliver a project that's going to you know be of his standard so he has very very high standards so it's it's a kind of a i suppose it's a kind of badge of honor if you say that he's attached to a project because you know yeah. that you're working at that level which is lovely um but obviously with any commission the idea has got to be right but if you have his name attached to it that that brings a lot of kudos to it it's not an automatic commission but it's people are thinking 
well. You know, David's, David's obviously very interested in this. We did, it was Life and Colour. He was very, very interested in, in doing co- uh, colour series because he'd, he'd never really done that subject matter. And he, when he was a series producer a long time ago, he'd actually made a series called the, um, I think, The Pattern of Animals, but it was all in black and white. So he said he couldn't really show the full effect of what was happening. So when we came back to him and said, you're talking, thinking about colour, he said, oh, I've always wanted to do that properly. I think that's why he was very engaged with that particular idea. So I think, you know, his his name is obviously absolutely incredible in, the, in this industry. And it just, and even when we're writing scripts, we're thinking, you know, how would David say this? What would he do? You know, how, how do we tweak this? Less is more with him always. He's very refined with his words. He's a brilliant writer. So um, it's great when you have him looking through your script. And if you have very few changes, you feel, phew, <laughs> we've done a good <laughs> job there. Because obviously he's, he's got the, the, you know, his seal of approval. In a sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, while Babies was bought by Netflix, he've had a few um, um, productions on the streaming platforms. Obviously, natural history as a space traditionally isn't the cheapest genre to produce. Are you finding that the streaming companies are still interested in natural history, given the kind of like ec- economical challenges they've faced in the last year or two? They, they, they are. They're being more cautious. You know, I think there was a, a rush to actually kind of fill their platforms with natural history content. And now I think they've got a lot of that. Um, so each project going forward, I think has they have to very carefully consider. And also, I think there was a lot of experimentation, you know, what works, you know, uh, taking different approaches to things. And I think now they're thinking, well, which of those projects would we return to? What kind of ideas worked? So I think a lot of that is going on. I think Netflix quite, when we did our first series with them, Colour, they were moving into the co-production space in natural history. And that, I think, is a good way forward for a lot of, you know, because it means you can, you're you're not having to invest as much money, I suppose, uh, if other territories are being carved out by by other buyers. I think that, that that's a model that we've always, you know, adhered to. You know, if we can bring different partners together, it can help really so i think there is definitely been a slowdown in the natural history commissioning but i think that that that's just a sense of they've got a lot coming through and i think they're being very careful about what they commission next and i think there will be a change in the way that all of these these platforms do their deals i think the kind of idea they just spend loads of money and buy it all and own it all might change across different platforms so so i think there is a bit of a sea change going on but i think there's still opportunity there because natural history is still it, it is perennial you know i think rather like drama it can stay on the platform for a long time and still look, be amazing 10 years down the line and still you know still gather an audience into it you know people will still come and watch it um you know new new members joining signing up to netflix will go oh wow i can look at that because it's it, it doesn't really date really tell you the truth the technology exactly. now, the 4, 4k 5k 6k that we're producing it, it looks great mm-hmm. and uh, i spoke to another contributor yesterday and she mentioned that a big problem within the space is raising finance to make the shows themselves and um, how are you finding that and what strategy do you have in place to to combat such issues i think for us i think you know we there's two ways you can go you can either think do we go down a a, a cheaper route with some of these kind of you know programs and that is something that's valid you can say can we do this for a very you know small amount of money and there are certain things you, 
you can do if you're filming in one location over a period of time but not traveling around the world then i think you can do that and bring bring even bring money together from different people for that you know where where you're at the high end of the market which we tend to do the kind of premium you do need a lot of money you know and those costs have gone up quite a lot over the last five years because there has been a kind of big market buying buyers market and also i think you know around the world different countries are quite rightly recognizing the value of film crews coming to their countries they're saying well actually you've got a charge to have access to these things uh it's, you know you can have a daily rate to go to 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 national parks those costs are going up and that's perfectly valid because people are going there to make make films there so so i think that premium end is 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 the difficult end i think the thing is I think people recognise the value of premium, so they are willing to put money into their pockets for the right idea. But I think it is, again, if you can bring money together from different sources, that helps. So if you can get the different territories to buy into a particular idea, you can do it. It takes longer to achieve that than going to one buyer who's going saying, I'll give you money for that, just go and make it. So it's a, it's a longer game to get the financing in place. But it's something that we've been doing for a while and kind of used to that, that, that kind of approach exactly and infield worked on um a secret world of sound didn't they i mean do you do you yeah. traditionally have a lot of co-production partners for each project or does it kind of is it a case uh, by yeah. thing? It's, it, it's yeah we have done so was, uh, life and color was with a company called sea light in australia infofly with secret world of sound um we've got a, a, a two two more projects coming to put in production now which won't have co-producing partners but they will have money from different territories it varies we've got a very i think to, to to, to sort of kind of stay ahead of the game, you need to be nimble in the way in which you do projects and not just be taking one size fits all approach. And that's kind of what we we do. We are quite nimble in thinking, how do how do we for this particular project, will this work? Will the co-production market work? Do we need a co-producing partner? Don't we? We think that through quite a lot. So and and sometimes we, we don't, and sometimes we do. And I think, you know, co-productions are, are tricky because you have to satisfy different markets and often you might have to recut the film slightly particularly if you have an on-screen presence with someone like David Attenborough Infill would have to put a different presenter into their version so that takes up a bit more time so they are they are harder to, to make but they also bring you more money and they're very rewarding if you've got a good partnership which we have I think it, it works very well and also your different partners can bring different value to, to, to your project we've got a with Infillfly a great writer Dougald in particular is a very good writer and brings great value with his writing so, so it, it benefits us and it benefits there. but i think it's being is ad- adapting to the changing market that's 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 the key thing at the moment it's, it's not so easy to go out there and just say here's an idea and people are going to throw money at you i think that's kind of drying up i think you have to work at it a bit but i still think there is a market there if you to yeah. found really talking about the changing market i mean obviously traditionally we thought of natural history as being for the broadcasters such as bbc you know nat geo that kind of thing then we've seen a move towards the streamers and now we're seeing uh, you know the younger generation and migrating to digital and online sites like YouTube and social media. Do you have a do you have a kind of long-term strategic plan for welcoming that generation in with maybe, I don't know, short form content or something for online sites or anything along those those kind of lines? I not 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 us personally. I know some companies are looking at that. I think 
the difficulty of it is is the the monetizing of that short form doesn't always generate returns for you um but there are there are areas where people are exploring that particularly in the environmental aspect i think that's a great opportunity to engage uh, younger people and i know silverback are doing that with some of their impact uh, work really so i think there is that definite market i think where natural history is different to a lot of other genres in terms of attracting uh, younger people is it is it, i think people young people do come to it they come to it either with their families or it's, it's kind of seems to go across the generations really <laughs> and so i think we, we we feel that what we do particularly it still will draw younger people in that demographic but i think for me looking at the online markets are quite a, a difficult area because youtube has looked at that they've looked at sort of adapting their 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 kind of output and trying they, they tried to sort of take a, a, an expensive approach i suppose to making some youtube projects but i think they pulled back from that to my understanding so it, it is it is a case of you'd have to invest quite heavily in thinking how do we make this work with minimal financing because i think a lot of that kind of uh, programming on short form doesn't have much financing in its early in its infancy as a company stepping into that obviously if you've got a a, a presence uh or a, or a um somebody who's got a recognition as a as a star on those kind of platforms you can instantly get access to that and that, that's an area that some people are i think are exploring but it's not not an area for us at the moment um obviously on your website it says that you know humblebee has a reputation for going beyond the traditional documentary format can you can you tell us any other plans you might have for the future on how you're going to keep innovating and um keeping your content fresh i think for us where we've always tried we try to cross genres a little bit i think that's the key thing so whether that's bringing a little bit more science into natural history or even when we were doing natural curiosities that was bringing history into the natural history area i think we're always keen to explore those kind of areas where there's a cross genre so that's what we mean by kind of trying to trying to refresh the kind of brand a, you know blue chip is our core but we try to underpin that with a with a different take on it so i think whenever we when and it's coming back to the idea again of habitats we we don't really just say oh here's an idea that could be filmed in habitats around the world we say well, okay what what is the new element that we can bring into that to a blue chip as its kind of core but give a slightly a, a give a fresh feel to it so i think that that's always the challenge whether that's something like sounds where you're you're saying well actually no one's really explored this area in full before or or, or whether it's taking a, an approach where we are on a, on a, a new project that I can't really talk about, but it's again, it's been more immersive in some way in, in the way we're doing it. So I think it's just always thinking what will give a slightly different feel than the traditional blue chip natural history market. And I think that's what we're always having to do to try and make it feel fresh and different. And last question, um, just looking to the near future, what are the opportunities and challenges in this space for the next two to three years? I think the challenges, are, I think it's quite tough. It's challenging in the moment um, because I I think there is there is a realignment or some people might say there's a correction going on obviously this is not just unique to natural history i think the um, scripted market even even the scripted market is feeling that there's a pullback in terms of funding but i think that's also opportunities because i think i think a lot of these different partners that we've had in the past are looking to open up to to different partnerships with other um players in different territories so i think that does present opportunities as well it's it's tricky um but i think that it's it, it makes you think more about what you have to do to actually sell these ideas you can't just go to one more or less you can't some people do still have these kind of relationships where they go to one player and say here we are take it but for us we're always looking at who can we join together to make this work so it is it is challenging and i think the next couple of years will be quite quite difficult for a lot of people in the industry uh people who you know because there is you know there is a there's a little bit of a downturn so i think people are 
kind of getting the work coming in is quite difficult. But I think also, I think these things tend to be cyclical as well. So I think people will bounce back and they'll find a new opportunity to, to do this. So hopefully that'll be the positive. Stephen Dunleavy, speaking with Neil Beatty. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.